This morning we're going to be looking at Mark's Gospel, chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. I'd encourage you to read, uh, to find your place in Mark chapter 16. That's where we'll be this morning from verse 1 through verse 8. And as we go throughout this passage, we're going to be looking at three primary things. Three primary things. First, a necessary sacrifice. A necessary sacrifice. Second, a complete crucifixion. A complete crucifixion. And where we'll spend most of our time is thirdly and finally, a powerful resurrection. A powerful resurrection. A necessary sacrifice, a complete crucifixion, a powerful resurrection. So, why are we here? We're here to worship the risen King. If you're not aware, that's why we're here. That's why we're here every single Sunday, to worship a risen King. Every leader of any movement throughout history has always died. You can go and you can find the burial of Abraham Lincoln's grandfather not far from here. You can go and you can find monuments in Lincoln's honor. You can go and find every single president who has led this country and died. You can find them somewhere, perhaps monumentalized, recognized, memorialized. You can find them, but you cannot find Jesus. For his tomb was empty. And he is not on earth. He is on his throne, just as we've sung, and will one day come again. Praise be to God for an empty tomb, a risen Savior, and an ascended King. So if you would, if you found yourself in Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, stand with me if you are able, and I will read Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Siloam, bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. May the Lord receive honor in the reading of his word. You may be seated. Earlier this week, I began to read through Mark's gospel in thinking about this sermon And I love that Mark's gospel is so to the point. It is uh, the shortest of all of the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, 
Luke and John. Uh, and Mark is very uh, truthful. He doesn't mince words with theological jargon. He doesn't do these different things. Even as we get into our final point, it is an oxymoron deluxe. That being a powerful resurrection. But when Mark gives this account, he, he doesn't just give it in isolation because knowing that Mark chapter 16 is there, we should know that there are 15 chapters beforehand. And so while we don't see this necessary sacrifice in verses 1 through 8, Mark makes it very abundantly clear throughout that this sacrificial act of Jesus on the cross is, there's probably not even a big enough word to say how necessary it is. It is a requirement. Apart from this sacrifice, we have no hope. So a necessary sacrifice. Jesus in Mark chapter 8 doesn't just say that he's necessary. He says he must. He must. Verse 31 of chapter 8, Jesus says, the Son of Man must. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. This is necessary. Why is Jesus' death necessary? Why must Jesus suffer, be killed, and be resurrected? Listen to the words of Tim Keller. He says, Jesus didn't just say that the Son of Man would suffer. He said that the Son of Man must suffer. Keller continues, this word is so crucial that it's employed Twice, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and he must be killed. The word must modifies and controls the whole sentence. And it means that everything in the list is necessary. It is a necessity. Jesus must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, must be resurrected. Mark gives us a clue in Mark chapter 14, verse 12, where they're at in the Jewish calendar. Mark chapter 14, verse 12 says that on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, what does that make you think of? Hopefully it makes you think of the Exodus. And how God provided through the blood of a lamb over the doorpost and passed over his people. That those who trusted in him from the Exodus church. Then we see later in the Mosaic law, the reminder of the separation that humankind has because of sin. They cannot be in the presence of of God to the point that the curtain separated them, that only the priest and only on one day, the day of atonement, could he enter the presence of God. And 
this atonement was laid out in the sacrificial system. There were ways to atone for sins of different kinds. And then there was the sin offering. The lamb that was slain. And a lamb who was sent out into the wilderness bearing the sin. One bears the sin of the people by being slain. It's blood shed and one sent out into the wilderness to bear the sin. Mark identifies that this is what's happening. This is what's taking place. And friends, we need a better Savior. We don't need to go and find a goat or a ram. We don't need to do that. Because the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus' blood, His perfect, spotless blood, Jesus' sacrifice is necessary as our Passover lamb. John the Baptist, upon seeing Jesus, proclaims in John chapter 1, verse 29, just in seeing Jesus, he tells everyone around him, Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, what do you do with your sin? Perhaps we hide it. Perhaps we sweep it under the proverbial rug and we say, no, 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 no. That's, that's not there. I don't, I don't have that sin. Perhaps if you're like me, there's no hiding it. Your anger and frustration just comes to the surface, even when you try and hide it. Friends, what you do with your sin is of paramount importance. Time and time again, history has proven that man will try and respond to their own sin in different ways, whether by hiding it, by justifying it, by doing all of these things. But there is no resolution apart from the Lamb of God. Jesus, as our Passover Lamb, did not come and atone for nothing. There was very real sin from the beginning of creation, Adam and Eve fell into temptation and sin, causing all of humanity to be in sin. But we don't only inherit this sinfulness, we also enact it. We willingly choose. We're not victims. We're not oppressed. We are actors who choose sin over God. Friends, what a remarkable reality that while we choose sin over God, God chooses us. In our sin, He sent His Son. It is a necessary sacrifice. Paul writes that rarely would a man die for a just person. What's he getting at? Rarely would a man die for a just person. Not even the unjust. You wouldn't even think about dying for the unjust. We are unjust. We are sinners. Separated 
from God. Just as Isaiah writes that our sin, not, our, not just our collective sin, our individual sin has caused a separation between us and our God to where he cannot even hear you. Yet, friends, praise God that in Christ he heard our prayer. He heard our wailing and he did not leave us to our own devices, to our own deception, but he sent his son, our necessary sacrifice, who is sufficient, who has come in our place. Derek mentioned it in last week's sermon that he was substituted for us. There was a judgment coming and there is a judgment still looming. Jesus is our substitute. He is our sacrifice. He is our lamb. The sacrifice on the cross is necessary. It is necessary to atone for real sin, to atone for real sinners. Not only do we see this necessary sacrifice, we see in Jesus' work upon the cross that it was not incomplete, it was not to be determined, it was finished. It was a complete crucifixion. A complete crucifixion. By this time, in the first century, the Romans' ability to crucify became as if they were a star athlete watching game tape over and over and over again. They had perfected the ability to crucify to such an extent that they could get a person so close to death and then stop for just a moment. This crucifixion was employed against particularly lower classes for treason and as a horrible public example, so that anyone else who wants to rise up against Roman government, against Roman rule, anyone would be frightened to try and do that because the example was, you'll end up just like them. They learned this torturous method the Romans did from preceding cultures and increased its cruelty and perfected its extent. There was no doubt that Jesus was actually dead. Joseph of Arimathea, who goes before Pilate asking to bury uh, Jesus' body, as well as the Roman soldiers confirming Jesus' death by giving Jesus over to Joseph to be buried, to be anointed. There was no doubt. This crucifixion actually yielded death. I don't know about you, but if you turn on the TV around this week, one, you'll see uh, some kind of sporting event going on in Georgia. I don't know. But you'll also see all of these specials on CBS and History Channel about did Jesus actually come back from the grave? Did Jesus actually die? You see all of these conspiracy theories. And so uh, as any good preacher who's preaching on Jesus' resurrection, you need to research those conspiracy theories. I'd heard of a couple. I never would have dreamed that there were as many as 
there actually are, and some of the lunacy of some of them is just incredible. Um, if you want those details on some of those, um, uh, yeah, don't come to me and ask for those details. It's not, not worth your time. But we see that in, uh, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 11, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest. See, these conspiracy theories don't start in 2023. They didn't start in 2019. These are old age things. Conspiracy theories aren't new. They didn't blossom because of social media. They've only increased. Okay? So here's the beginning of the conspiracy of Jesus didn't actually die. Matthew chapter 28, verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard, that is the Roman guard, went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Remember, this is after the resurrection. This is after the empty tomb. This is after the women have seen the tomb empty. This is after the guards who sat there as the stone was rolled away, who saw all of these things happen. They go, verse 12, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said to them, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story was spread among the Jews to this day. Friends, if you're heart and mind is persuaded with conspiracy theories. Jesus has risen. I'm not going to go into all of the details of these things. I'm going to assume that for the most part, many of you in this room actually believe that. So my plan in this sermon is not to persuade you that Jesus is actually risen. My plan in this sermon is to get us to live like it. So Jesus' death actually, uh, Jesus' crucifixion actually yielded death. Listen to this uh, journal article from the American Medical Society from March 21st, 1986. You may say, 1996? That's so long ago. Friends, this is the American Medical Society, written, you can find it. Here is how the author says, and I quote, Clearly, the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right ribs probably perforated not only the right lung, but also to his heart and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. End quote. It was a complete crucifixion. Not only did Jesus take our sin, he took upon himself the wrath of God. Yielding up himself. Remember his plea, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only was his death a necessary sacrifice, it was a complete crucifixion. But friends, here we are 
on Easter Sunday. Not to talk about those things, but to rejoice in a powerful resurrection. And this is where the oxymoron comes in. That we have to define a resurrection of a dead person coming to life as powerful is the definition of an oxymoron. But this is exactly how Mark writes about it in Mark chapter 16. He recounts the the women sharing that, yeah, the angel tells him he's not there. Verse 6, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. you've read Mark's gospel, and I'm going to give you a synopsis of some glimpses of Jesus' authority, of Jesus as king, as Mark describes him. Obviously, Jesus is telling his disciples that he would destroy the temple, the temple of his body, and in three days rebuild it. And the Jews and the chief priests are like, no, you're not. It took us way too long to build this temple. You're not going to be able to do that. Didn't even understand what he was talking about. When Peter, just as Derek preached last week, when Peter confesses Christ, when he says, I must, the Son of Man must suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests, Peter's like, no, 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 no. That's not what's supposed to happen. But not only does Mark recount all of his wisdom and all of Jesus kingly authority not only over uh, creation but he shows his ability to resurrect let me show you just three quick examples and the first one you might be like I don't know that's a stretch Mark chapter 1 verse 31 the beginning of it Mark begins to recount how Jesus is starting his public ministry and one of the disciples mothers is there and she's sick Now you may say, yeah, the text is sick, not dead. Because those are different things. And if you've seen The Princess Bride, you'll know those things are different. But we're not talking about Princess Bride. We're talking about reality. We're talking about the Bible. Jesus' crucifixion was complete. And so here's the first glimpse of Jesus' authority to heal, Jesus' authority to raise to life. Mark chapter 1, verse 31. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. Not convinced enough, okay? Mark chapter 5, verses 39 through 42. Mark chapter 5, verse 39 through 42. And when he had entered, that is, the the house of Jairus, whose daughter has fallen asleep, and when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? What's the inference here? They believe she's dead. They believe this girl is dead, even to the point where as Jesus is out in the town square, Jairus comes and says, you need to come and help my daughter. And he delays and he delays and he 
delays. Jesus enters the house of Jairus and the family and those who are there seem to be gathered around the corpse of this daughter. And Jesus says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but is sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Maybe they laughed at him at the beginning when he said she's sleeping, but they're not laughing now when she awakes. There is amazement. They are stunned. Isn't it a good word to know that those who fall asleep in Christ, that's the term the New Testament writers use when believers in Christ die. They don't say they died forever to be in this mishmash of eternity. No, Jesus reminds those who trust in him. He reminds the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That while this little girl sleeps, Jesus raises her to life. Friends, that's the hope of Christianity. That's the hope of of Jesus. That's the hope of the resurrection, is that while those who die in Christ sleep, they will rise. Another glimpse of this powerful resurrection, Mark chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. Mark chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. Jesus is, just to give you a snippet of it, Jesus is going in this this father brings this son to Jesus. The son is convulsing with a demon. He's had a demon for years. The demon has caused him to be thrown into water, has caused him to be thrown into fire. All of these things. And Jesus has the authority to remove this. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, that being the demon. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Friends, not only is this resurrection powerful, this resurrection is personal. Look at each of those glimpses. Jesus doesn't just stand haphazardly back and say some pronouncement. What does he do? He gets in there. He goes and he touches their hand and he raises them. Friends, this resurrection is certainly powerful, but it is personal. It is personal. So you may be sitting there and saying, all right, this is all great and stuff, but what, what does this do for me, right? What's in it for me? Well, I'm going to assume in 2023 in the United States, that's our selfish heart, right? What is in it for 
me. Let me tell you an application that might hit home. Maybe you're stuck in a Friday, Saturday. Let me tell you what I mean. Not you're working Friday and Saturday. You're stuck like Jesus' disciples in a Friday and Saturday mindset. My king is dead. There's no hope. I'm going to lock myself in a room. Maybe you think nothing good will come. Not only nothing good will come, nothing good can come. Nothing good can come of this situation. Nothing good can happen here. Friends, the resurrection reminds us. Just as the difference between Friday and Sunday of a tomb occupied by Jesus and a tomb left with his garments in place like it were an Airbnb, not there to stay forever. Things change. On Thursday, Jesus was betrayed. On Friday, he withstood a mock trial, was crucified, dead, and buried. Friends, if you're in an apathetic heart that nothing good can come here, Sunday's coming. You can live with resurrected hope. And that's not just to say, oh, because Jesus died, this applies to everything that I want this to be. No, because Jesus died, taking the most final minute, taking the most final verdict and changing it for all of history, because of that, you can actually endure hardship. You can actually endure suffering. We can endure these things together because we know that's not the final verdict. His closest followers didn't understand what he meant, that he must die and be raised to life. Friend, if you're there and your heart feels lukewarm and you need this resurrection hope, let me call you to sow seeds of hope. Perhaps small prayers. Maybe just like the one who Jesus says, you know, do you have faith? If you have faith, this will happen. And he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe it's throwing up a prayer and saying, Lord, I believe that this happened, but help my unbelief. Because it's hard right now. Perhaps maybe you're sitting there and you say, I've, I've heard this so many times, preacher. We know Jesus died rose we can sing the song he came from heaven to earth to show the way come on we should know that song but maybe we say that's fine for little kids to believe that i'm an adult now and i believe what i want to believe friends let me call you to look to the savior who not only was powerfully resurrected but was personally resurrected not only to redeem a people but to redeem individuals by his blood i remember one of the things raised in a church home raised in the church thinking man i've heard this so many times who's this sermon going to save today come on lord save somebody 
And it wasn't until the Lord reminded me, he took your sin too, bucko. Friends, he doesn't just save all of them. His blood doesn't just cover all of them. His atoning work on the cross is for you. For your sin. Just as Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant, by his wounds, we are healed. We, individual, and we, corporate. So let me call you not just to say, all right, he, he said it, I know the facts, I know those different things, but beloved, let the reality Let the emotion sink in. This seems so long ago that sometimes it's hard to think, did this really happen? The Bible seems to say that it really happened. The Bible certainly says that this really happened. So if you say, we know, we know, we've heard this. I'm going to pray that the Lord would open up your heart to either have the joy of your salvation renewed or to convict the devil out of you that you would realize that you are apart from christ and that you would recognize that while we were still sinners christ died for me see it gets different when it gets personal while i was still a sinner God shows his love in this way for me, that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Perhaps that thought of we know, we know, we know leads to the resurrection just being another time that we can get those specialty peeps and this is just going to be another time where we join together around the table and we have another meal and it's just another day and man monday all right here we go friends let the reality of jesus necessary sacrifice his his complete crucifixion and his powerful resurrection permeate into everything that you do what does jesus resurrection help us do on a work day what does jesus resurrection help us do in in a day at home where our kids seem to be banshees When the Lord blows my barn over. When the Lord takes a loved one. Friend, this resurrection hope is not just abstract. It's not just removed to apply only whenever the calendar says, Hey, it's bunny day. This reality of the resurrection ought to permeate every single thing about us. Just as Derek led last week, it changed everything. All of history changed calendars. The day that we worship in Christian worship changed now from the Sabbath to the Lord's Day, Sunday, because He rose. I love that old hymn. And I won't sing it because that's extra. (laughs) But it just starts with this really low, up from the grave He arose. Praise the Lord. We need the Lamb's necessary sacrifice 
You need the Lamb's sacrifice. I need the Lamb's necessary sacrifice. We need this complete crucifixion, for it is finished. And we need His powerful resurrection. We need this. You need this. And praise be to God that in His Son, He accomplishes it. Let me read this poem by a man living in the 7th century after Jesus' death. And it's from a poem called The Day of Resurrection. John of Damascus writes, Now let the heavens be joyful. Let earth her song begin. Let the round world keep triumph and all that is therein. Invisible and visible, their notes let all things blend. For Christ the Lord has risen, our joy that has no end. Friends, the resurrection changes everything. May we live like that.